This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 88. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and we are continuing our series of interviews of manga industry professionals this week with a veteran translator who has been in the business for over 25 years and is also a professional veterinarian. We are interviewing Dr. Mari Morimoto, who has been the translator on numerous series. Her translation credits extend over 40 series. She's done big hits like Inuyasha, Naruto, Dragon Ball. She's the current translator of Boruto, and she's the translator of the upcoming release of Rose of Versailles from Udon. And we definitely talk about that release and the, the translation uh, work that has gone into Rose of Versailles on this podcast. And we talk about a whole bunch of awesome uh, stuff related to manga translation, Mari's process how translation has changed from when she was first starting out in the industry to how it is now. It's an incredibly fun and informative interview, and we were so happy to have her on, and we are so excited for you all to listen to it. Mm-hmm. I'm Yes, I'm very excited about that as well. Um, but before we head into the interview, uh, we just want to give a uh, another patron shout-out here uh, before we uh, head on to the rest of the episode. Uh, we want to give a shout out to both uh, Foggle and Wensleydale Cheddar for being uh, two of our newest patrons over at uh, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, so we really want to thank them for uh, helping support the show as, re- as well as uh, the rest of our patrons as well. Remember that every little bit counts as far as uh, supporting the podcast and Patreon goes. So a huge thank you to the both of them. Yeah, they're both good friends of ours, and I'm really, really honored for your guys' support. It means the world to us. And yes, if you'd like to join them as patrons, definitely head on over to patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where we have all sorts of awesome reward tiers for you guys. At the $5 tier, you can get the patron bonus pod. Uh, at higher tiers, like the $10 tier, you can get access to our show notes. At $15 tier, you can get access to unreleased podcasts and bloopers. Uh, We have so much content available on our Patreon. So if you want to head on over there and get access to that, you know, any support of yours would be greatly appreciated. But thanks to Wensleydale and Falco, we are just a step closer into reaching some of our goals in terms of helping support the finances of making the podcast this year. And uh, we are incredibly grateful for their help. Um, stay tuned for the end of the episode, because uh, I might be talking about what our patron bonus podcast might be. Uh, we we kind of we kind of have an idea of uh, what we want to do for our first newly recorded bonus podcast, but uh, I think we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. So, mm-hmm. and for now, let's all head in to the doctor's office and let's learn. The Diagnosis of the State of the Manga Industry from Dr. Mari Morimoto. You, you, didn't, you didn't tell me we were going to the doctor. <laughs> oh. Hope you got your shots. Oh. No, this, this is a vet trip? No, I've been tricked! <laughs> <laughs> hmm. 
We've been interviewing several guests from the manga industry this year, and we have interviewed people who have just recently got into the industry and who were there way back in its booming years in North America back in the 90s. And today we've got a guest that has been in the industry for over 25 years, since the early 90s, working on some of the earliest translation projects from this media. But in addition to that, we have a guest on who is not only uh, a part of the comics industry, but is also a professional veterinarian, a big city small animal veterinarian by day, a freelance manga translator by night. Uh, we are so excited to have on Dr. Mari Morimoto. Thank you for coming on, Mari. No problem. I am honored to be a part of the podcast. And we are so excited to have you. Uh, the genesis of this really came about, uh, you know, during a conversation we were having with Jason on Twitter, kind of after our interview with him. And we were kind of talking about Saint Seiya because we kind of brought it up on our interview. And uh, your name came up. And uh, from there, you know, we got to talking with Jason. And it seemed like we really wanted to invite you on the show to talk about your experiences because... Uh, you have done so much in your career in the manga industry. Like, ex you have over 40 translation credits, and you have interpreted for almost a hundred guests at so many conventions, it seems like. And it's really, really incredible. I actually, I've counted before the number of chapters and volumes I've translated, but you're probably the first person who's sat down and counted the number of guests I've interpreted for. I'm actually kind of amazed myself. <laughs> I also have to say, I guess this is another thing I have to thank Jason Thompson for because little known behind the scenes fact is Jason is was the instrumental person in uh, introducing me to Naruto. Uh, he was the first editor on Naruto. And as well as, uh, and the reason for that was because we worked together both uh, initially on Dragon Ball. And you were the uh, translator for uh, what we consider like the original Dragon Ball, like the pre-Z days? Yes, the early, the childhood adventures of Goku, yes. Yes, everything before Raditz. And that's another interesting factoid is in Japan, um, those of the core fans who uh, have read Dragon Ball in the original Japanese know there's only one Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z or Z as it's known in Japan, really came about as an anime division and mm -hmm. where they divide the story up for purposes of the different TV seasons. So it was interesting because uh, Dragon Ball is 40-something volumes long, if I remember correctly, and Viz was concerned about whether fans would stick it through if they did everything sequentially from beginning to end. So they made the decision to split the manga into the Childhood Avengers and the Adult Goku plus Children of Goku Adventures. And, you know, naturally, the they thought of just using Dragon Ball Z for the later adventures. See, I, I used to think that was really arbitrary. Uh, but then I remember uh, when we had Jason on, he, he also mentioned about how, like, when, when they brought over Yu-Gi-Oh! Uh, over for the first time about how, like, 
uh, they split it up into three different sections because of that same reason, because they wanted to make sure all of it got translated and brought over. So from, from that perspective, that makes a lot of sense. So. Yeah, they could do it at the same time, Dragon Ball and Dragon Ball Z, so fans wouldn't have to wait however many years to get to the Saiyan portion of the stories. And by that time, I mean, most of the fans who read Dragon Ball had already been watching the anime, so it was a little bit less jarring for them, I would feel. But it was also kind of towards the tail end when Viz was still releasing titles, both flipped and in the original Japanese orientation. Yeah, and they were coming out in these monthly floppies that had like two chapters an issue. And it was it's kind of crazy to think about the release schedule of manga back then to like the how fast the turnaround is now where we're simultaneous with Japan. Absolutely. And it was interesting. I think part of it also was a marketing decision. Not that I know for sure, because as a translator, I'm a freelancer and I'm independently contracted. So I don't know necessarily all the inner workings um, of the company. But, you know, even the size that they were printed in and released in was meant to mimic American comics. Mm hmm. Because one chapter by itself would be too short, like a chapter Dragon Ball is 15 pages, but you put two together and that's 30 pages, which is about the average size of, you know, a monthly uh, comic or just an issue of X-Men you could grab off the stands. Right. So I think it's very interesting that in the early days of the manga city, they were really trying to kind of fit manga into the like popular comics publishing model of like the big two and all that and now we're kind of in a state where they've really embraced just how manga is kind of published in japan and also kind of like how the fandom likes to interact with manga like we get weekly releases it's very digital focused now so it's kind of amazing how things have changed in the last uh, three decades I mean, I think part of it also is to, you know, in some ways, sadly, try to fight piracy and the income that it's actually stealing from not necessarily just the English publishers, but the original creators. Um, when, you know, a company like Viz or Kodansha USA or Vertical puts out a licensed, officially and legally licensed edition, some of it does trickle back to the publish the original Japanese publisher and creator in the form of royalties and so forth. But with the and so one of the things we've been trying to really uh, emphasize when we speak to um, young fans who want to go into the industry itself is we we understand that sometimes it's frustrating to wait months, if years, or ever to get a particular title that you might be interested in reading, but by encouraging and consuming piracy, it actually does hurt the creator because they don't get that extra income that helps keep them producing more and more content. Yeah, I mean, it's so obvious. It, it should be to like people that, you know, if you're not reading this through the official channels, if you're not paying money for these books, like the creators are not receiving any income, you know, in order to keep lights on, in order to buy supplies, in order to feed themselves. Like, it's kind of baffling to me that, you know, fans can enjoy like these works and not think about, oh, there is a lot of people whose livelihoods are to make these comics that, you know, need to support their, themselves that if you're not 
you know, purchasing these books through official channels, you're not supporting the official releases, you know, you are really hurting these creators. They are losing so much income for works that they are kind of really killing themselves to make in some cases like uh you know Echiro Oda has a very unhealthy schedule that's been well documented where he's like only getting four hours of sleep a night and so many creators are having so many health complications because doing manga is incredibly rigorous and uh draining and so I mean you know it used to baffle me more but I think part of it is that and this is not necessarily limited just to publishing, but for, I think, many youth, and it's not necessarily just in the U.S. either, but it's really hard to know what the workplace is like in different industries. And especially even if one is familiar with the comics industry and the publishing industry in the States, there are still differences um, between the U.S. and Japan. And especially up until recently... I think now even the publishers are doing a really better job of not necessarily improving the workplace, but explaining the workplace um, to audiences. But until now, I there was a long time I didn't even really I always knew that, you know, the manga artists and creators were very, you know, long hours, little pay that. But I didn't really know how bad it was until someone told me, well, did you know that for the for the big publishers, the manga artist doesn't even start getting income until the books are green-lighted to be graphic novels as opposed to the serialized magazines. I'm like, what do you mean? And they said, well, they get a little bit when their series is in the magazine, but they don't actually get true income until they're published as books. And I was like, but that could take a year or more. And, you know, that just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. There's so much more awareness of the how manga production actually is and kind of like what the financial like financials are like kind of like that like uh it is kind of crazy that you know you're not making a livable income if you're just serializing the magazine it really is uh important that the books are selling in order for artists to sustain themselves and even with the you know big artists like oda sensei and kishimoto sensei too you know even after they hit they usually need assistance and they're often paying for their assistance so it it's real it's really amazing like the finances are just mind boggling. Mm-hmm. And I and you've gone on record before to say like even uh even in the American side of things even for people working on the uh, Western uh, like manga publishing over here like uh you're a freelance translator and you you've said before uh, at other places that you can't make a living just on translation alone. There's a caveat to that, but in many cases it depends also of course on where you live and what your cost of living is. So mm. I do have a few colleagues who live purely on their translation, but they usually live in rural areas where the cost of living is a lot lower than someone like myself who lives in the middle of Manhattan, New York City. Yeah, very expensive uh, living conditions there. Uh, high real estate, very expensive uh, food uh, and just transit, all sorts of costs. They go into living in New York uh, like I was. I was there for a few years for schooling, and yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't have the income to stay there uh, on a regular basis, but I, I think nowadays it is probably easier for a lot of people to be freelance and work remotely from other places. Uh, since we have, you know, uh, internet, we can 
easily like communicate with each other uh, from all over the globe. Uh, We recently interviewed uh, Caleb Cook, who is translator on My Hero Academia, and he's in New Zealand and uh, doing translations for Viz, and uh, he uh, he gets them to them very fast and. Uh, so it's like all over the world. It's truly a glo- it can be a global operation now, like working on manga, and which has made things a lot easier. I mean, to contrast that with my early days, you know, when I first started working, I I, I started as a freelance translator for Viz, and in the early days, I would literally um, have a three and a half inch floppy disk on which I loaded the the translated script file. Plus, I would always print out a hard copy, and I'd physically take that to the closest FedEx office and FedEx it back to San Francisco. And similarly, I would get a package um, through FedEx from them with a physical printout of the next chapter or two chapters that they would want me to translate. Wow, I mean, there's just so many extra steps there. And then with those steps, like shipping costs of FedExing those pages back and forth. And now, thankfully, uh, I I assume that most of this is just digital files now that uh, you're sending to each other. So it it depends on the title and it depends on the publisher. Certainly, um, my remaining title with Viz right now is Boruto, which is, of course, the story, the sequel to Naruto or the story of mainly centered around Naruto's son and his friends, um, the next generation. But that, I uh, I log on to a server to download the the file. And um, because it's Samuel Pub, Samuel Pub print in Japan in the serial and digitally here in the U.S. But um, I work, uh, I still produce a script in on, I personally use MS Word, and then I just email the file back to my editor plus upload it back onto the server. So uh, things have definitely simplified. But there are still instances with, with Boruto, in fact, when the graphic novel volume comes out, I still purchase a physical copy because what my next job is in, in between the chapters is to compare if there have been any changes made between when the chapter appeared in the magazine as to when it appears in the book Plus, now you have additional pages, the interstitials between the chapters as fillers. So that's material that never appeared in the magazine. So I translate those. I translate the author's note. In this case, with Boruto, we have a separate writer and and artist. So the inside front cover has the um, one of them and the inside. Let me actually have the latest volume here. In fact, let me just double check. The inside front is the artist and the inside back cover has the message or notes from the writer. So that that's kind of what I do in between doing the actual chapters themselves. Wow, that's awesome. But I'm surprised that you have to uh, buy the physical book. You would think that they could send you like the digital copy of the book to read through. It would be a giant file, first of all. And then second, the the funny insight to that is because Viz needs to wait to get their copies directly from Shueisha, it's actually faster for me. It hits the stands in Japan and then gets aired to, for example, I mean, I'm in New York City. Maybe if I lived somewhere else, it'd be different. But in New York City, we have a Kinokuniya. And Kinokuniya oh, yeah. New York gets it from Kinokuniya Japan 
essentially a day or two, if not a day or the day of release in Japan. So we actually, I can physically get a copy of it faster. I could get the copy from Viz. Don't get me wrong. I could absolutely. But even mm. my editor at Viz gets his copy when it gets sent from Shueisha later than I could pick it up in the bookstore. Just, just out of curiosity. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's the case just because, like, I know manga in Japan is so much cheaper. Uh, this might not even really be an issue. But do you are you ever reimbursed for that kind of thing, or is that like a, or is or is that your choice to to buy it from the Kinokuniya? So, in the case of Boruto, it it was something that we established a while back, and I don't ask for reimbursement because um, this is this then becomes my permanent copy. Uh, mm-hmm. technically, if it's something that's reimbursed or if it's something that I wait from the publisher, not that it's necessarily true for all publishers, but the publisher has the right to ask for the books back, say at the end of the series or, you know, sometime after the series ends. Not that I've ever been asked, except for maybe one case from a, a different publisher for the volumes back. And that was only because they literally had lent me one of two copies that they had. But, uh, normally, in the case of Naruto and Boruto, where it's a timely thing, I've been getting the copies myself. Most other publishers, especially with series that the entire series has already been published and we're doing the English edition after the fact, they will usually provide me with the books with the caveat that if they should ever need it back, I would be obligated to give it back to that publisher. So it really, it does depend. It does depend. And also the reason why, I mean, part of it is, I am rather analog despite using the computer a lot, but um, especially in the case of the English print edition, I prefer having physical copies because, especially in a long-running series like Naruto, and now hopefully Boruto is looking to to be going past volume 10, hopefully at least, there are flashbacks. And so, I especially with the 72-volume Naruto, if towards the end they were especially flashing back towards you know the first 10 or so volumes it is much easier for me to pick up the physical copy and literally go volume by volume trying to find the flashback so we can use the same exact english dialogue that we used when it was first printed in english yeah and i think that's especially probably very important for naruto since that it's a series known for having lots of callbacks lots of flashbacks yeah, it is, it's actually funny. I mean, I hope I don't spoil anything for anyone, but, you know, one of the pleasures of watching the, the Endgame movie was going, wait, wasn't that a scene from this earlier <laughs> MCU movie? And, you know, things like that. So, but that that's exactly what I would have to do is, well, instead of using the, the moving image, I would go to the print and try to find back and tell my editor, oh, that was from volume three, page five, or, you know, th- something like that. So for me, it, it's still easier for me to do that physically than having to comb through a digital file. Yeah, it's definitely easier to flip through a book that you can just grab off your shelf and try and remember, oh, what chapter was this? I have to look through this big archive and then like click through the pages. I, I think it's definitely a lot faster if you can just flip through. I, I did have a little cheating system. Um, I know this came up as a potential question that you might ask me too, but for a series like Naruto and Saint Seiya, I definitely had a spreadsheet, kind of a, a, a cheater spreadsheet where we would list the original Japanese name, the romanization, 
any anglicization, if we had an anglicization, or if there were multiple ways to romanize it, which one we would end up going with. And we had that for the character names, the attack names, or in the case of Naruto, the jutsu or you know spell or ninja move name, places, uh, other terms, terms that may not appear as normal or usual Japanese jargon. And then I did have a separate tab, especially for Naruto, which listed which chapters ended up in which graphic novel volumes and an overall kind of arc. Like, you know, this arc was Naruto and Sasuke um, fighting against Orochimaru or something like that, you know. It's just so that if something came up, I could narrow it down to at least about five volumes. So I didn't have to search the entire 60, 70 volumes to find that particular flashback. Nice. And... Yeah, with Naruto, because it's so lengthy, it's very good to have such a comprehensive database to refer to. And that that would be sent to my editor. And what was also kind of added a further layer of complexity for Naruto is, of course, the anime was running at the same time. And sometimes things would appear in the manga first, but then appear in the anime. And, you know, that was kept also to either create consistency or if there wasn't consistency to keep it apart so we didn't mix the two terms together. Right. Because it would be confusing if, like, the anime and the manga, like, if they were using two different terms, if somehow in one version they were switching between them. Uh, and it was, yeah, it would be like uh, in Viz's editions of Dragon Ball if, like, if they sometimes refer to Kurin as Kurin and then sometimes as Krillin, or they refer to Newten Roshi as Master Roshi, like in the Funimation dub. And that's yeah. not to say that we don't, you know, unfortunately we're all humans, so sometimes these inconsistencies do come in, um, and we can't really help that, but at least this is designed to try to minimize that as much as possible. And for Saint Seiya, too, um, part of it was uh, also, we then also had their constellation name. And huh? then um, part of that, which was interesting, is initially, I had actually, it was one of the few titles I had actually pitched to Viz and said, hey, you're doing all these classic uh, Shonen Jump titles. What about Saint Seiya? And they weren't sure initially about the marketability. So, um, but they said, you know, w w you ha you put it on a radar. We'll let you know. And then sure enough, a bunch of years down the line, when the anime got picked up, they came back to me and said, hey, you're the one that mentioned Saint Seiya. Well, they're doing the anime, so we've gotten the green light to license the manga. Are you still interested? I said, oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> But they did do a lot of localization with the names of the characters uh, initially. Yeah. So because the manga in this case, even though it was published first in Japan, was published after the anime had already started running in the U.S., we did uh, match the names to the anime for a while. And it was only after the anime uh, was canceled and stopped running and the manga was still continuing in terms of the overall chronology that we were able to then go back to the original, just more of a pure romanization. Yeah. So I, that is something I noticed when I was reading Saint Seiya is that uh, once you got to the Poseidon and the Hades arcs, like that's the, the past the point where DIC stopped. Uh, then, yeah, then you guys kept like the original names. We didn't have to match the anime if there was no anime running. 
Oh, that's that's interesting. So so was there I, I haven't read Saint Seiya for the record yet anyway. Um, so was there ever a point in its release where like um, so did did you guys ever go back to, um, I guess, correct those first volumes or is or are we at a point where it's like for the first part of the series, we have to stick with the Deke names or whatever. And then we and then the other half of the series, we stick with their original names. To my knowledge, I don't think it's ever being reprinted with the original names. I might be wrong, yeah. however. Uh, I have the digital editions uh, from Viz, and uh, they have not uh, altered uh, the DIC names. Like, it's still, like, the same uh, names from uh, the original print run. So, you know, Cancer Death Mask is uh, Cancer Mephisto still, uh, basically. <laughs> And that was the, the one of the things that I, I love to talk about when I've had the fortune of giving a few manga translation lectures now. And one of my favorites is uh, the white whale saint, who is a silver saint. His name is Moses or Mose. But um, there was still a trend at the time to try to steer away from names that might be biblical or, or sound too much like Satan or devil so they decided to give him a name, and I said, "Well, was there some sort of problem with Ahab, or you know, a character? Because he's the, he's the white whale saint, and the white whale does is missing an eye. So I was like, could or could we call him Moby? You know, after Moby Dick, or but they gave him the name Morris, and I I had no input on this, so I don't know the reason for choosing Morris. That's a disclaimer. I I always say." I don't know what the decision was um, or who came up with Morris. But to me, as a veterinarian, Morris was this beautiful orange tabby cat that used to sell Nine Lives cat food. So I have this really strange image in my head whenever I see... In fact, uh, Morris looked a lot like uh, one of the more recent movie cats um, that we've seen on screen. But, you know, every time, you know, they say, here's Silver Saint Morris, I'm like, I would see this orange cat instead. <laughs> Would you say that's one of the strangest name choices you'd have to go with that, you know, was mandated by uh, editorial or just like an outside uh, influence? It's one of the strangest. I feel like there have been stranger, but I can't. It, nothing's quite coming to mind yet. But I, I remember it wasn't necessarily the most strange choice. Um, and certainly, I mean, within the same series, the one that you just pointed out, Death Mask becoming... Mephisto was kind of weird because Mephistopheles was essentially, I believe, a servant to the devil, wasn't he? Yeah, it's a figure in German uh, folklore, but that is very has very re uh, religious connotations. So that one uh, was a strange choice, just in the sense that, well, what's so less controversial about Mephisto? Yeah, I, I that was strange to me too. It's like, is Death Mask really that? taboo a name like debt mentioning death in the series i think that it was a dic mandate i think i guess when they were airing the show they wanted to avoid all mention of debt i mean they edited blood uh to be green and call it not blood so their uh, version of the anime was heavily censored in many ways the um english release the u.s release of the anime so i actually had not known that that's really interesting to know i mean also um, another thing that was odd is, of course, uh, one of the gold saints' name is Aphrodite, but is a very clearly macho male character. 
So I was like, wait, so it's okay to call this male saint by female goddess's name? Yeah, that is interesting that they didn't change that. But I guess it's like, well, this is Greek uh, folklore. It's not something we need to change. But I am surprised DIC didn't change the gender of them because you you think that's something they would do with effeminate characters. Like, that's what DIC did with a Sailor Moon. Uh, they changed gender of, like, one of... Uh, the early villains into a woman. Oh, and then, yeah, again, uh, whenever there was like a really effeminate male character, they would change them into a woman. But I'm glad we are far away from those early uh, censorship days of uh, the anime being handled in television by companies like DIC and 4Kids. I mean, to, to a certain extent, though, I mean, to give them credit, I can't completely blame them um, for that. Because they were concerned about audience, especially parents of audience reaction. And, you know, I mean, that's a concern, unfortunately, that's cropping up again with the rise of rise or uncovering of conservatism again in the, in, in the country. So, you know, one of the main things that that is of much concern is that the content that is considered not even acceptable, but just taken for granted in Japan being considered too mature for an equivalent Asian American audience, I can understand. I mean, you don't want something pulled just because, you know, it's other, so it's easier to pull something that, that's originally foreign content. Yeah, I, I definitely think that they want to avoid controversy, and, like, standards were so much stricter back then in terms of what could be shown on TV. I feel nowadays it, they've loosened a lot. We have a lot of uh, children's cartoons that are really pushing the boundaries in terms of what you can uh, depict and show in cartoons. I remember remarking to my husband, um, we were just traveling out to Queens the other day, and there's a big billboard um, within the subway station for uh, my life with pets. I forget the exact my title. Secret life, of secret life of Pets, yeah. The Life of Pets, The Life of Pets number two. And the tagline on the poster was, I'm too old for this shh. And it actually spells out the word. <laughs> and I was like, wow, it's not S-H asterisk asterisk. I'm like, <laughs> what, did, did, did someone actually copy edit this? I mean, and, and they, they're allowing this in a public place where a lot of kids are. Yeah, it's not surprising to see humor like that in uh, family-focused entertainment these days. Uh, like, since the beginning of the decade, there were a lot of, like, cartoons, uh, children's entertainment that kind of, like, being a lot bolder and what they can get away with. So it's not surprising to see, like, in marketing, uh, them being unafraid to kind of also uh, be a little out there and abrasive as well. But I am interested in kind of going back to like the beginning of your uh, translation career and like I just want to kind of talk about like how you got into the industry uh what were some of your first projects and then I also was wondering about uh on the subject of pets uh you are a professional veterinarian a you're also a freelance veterinarian, and I was wondering how you got into uh, the veterinarian profession, and what's it like uh, juggling both professions? So it's a it's a question that I often get asked, and I always laugh when I answer this because, 
you know, especially when I when I meet other Japanese people and we do the customary business card exchange, and like, oh wow, you're you're a veterinarian, and I said, well, technically. <laughs> So my interest in veterinary medicine started first, or rather my interest in animals. I've always loved animals. I was a bit of a misanthrope growing up. I'm still a little skeptical about mankind, the, the, the human species. But um, I always wanted to do something around animals, but my mother wanted me to go into the medical field. So I said, well, what about the animal medical field? So I've been wanting to be a vet, and I've always wanted to do multiple things. So it was, it was like, I wanted to be a vet and an astronaut. I wanted to be a vet and a ballerina. I wanted to be a vet and an actor. But the veterinarian part was was, was there pretty early, I would say, maybe preschool, uh, kindergarten, first grade, that kind of thing. And I kind of grew up reading manga, more kind of like how I would have had I grown up in Japan. I, I, I was born in Japan came here when I was less than one and uh, came straight to New York and grew up uh, my whole life in New York City. But um, I would get packages from my relatives in Japan and they often had secondhand, thirdhand manga in them. So they were really meant for my, my cousin who, who grew up with me because uh, she was 11 years older, but I'd kind of steal them from her room and read them. And <laughs> so I kind of grew up more kind of like very naturally the manga part of my life. Then I went off to college, and um, I went to Cornell, which has a veterinary college on campus. But I wanted—I knew once I entered veterinary school, I'd, I'd be pretty much relegated to doing most, uh, mostly just biological sciences. So I said, "Well, let me let me look at social science for my undergraduate." Um, which is another big difference between education in Japan and the U.S. is in Japan to this day. If you're going to go into the sciences, you kind of have to focus on the sciences even as an undergraduate. But in the U.S., I had the, the freedom to do something completely different. So I decided to choose anthropology. Yes, mythanthrope going into anthropology, into the study of human <laughs> beings. Maybe perhaps I had some some conscious desire to understand my own species better. And and having been a American-raised Japanese identified person, I went into cultural anthropology, specifically Japan studies. And the professor at the time, Dr. Robert Smith, was um, just about retiring. And uh, the new Japan studies professor that came ended up being Dr. Ted Bester, who is, was at the time, and I think still is best known for doing an anthropological study of the Tsukiji fish market. He had a very modern approach to anthropology. It you can study your own culture. You don't have to study an other culture. You um, modern history, modern civilizations, much as as important as studying the more kind of colonial view of the the backwoods or or slightly more primitive cultures. And you could you could study first world countries. So I went to him with the interest of of. Pitching my idea was being still interested in veterinary medicine. I wanted to do a study of how Japanese culture treated cats through history because I was I was I grew up mainly a cat person, and I wanted to look at um, both woodblock prints of cats, historical accounts of of cats, cat folklore in Japanese um, uh, history and culture, as well as anime portrayals of cats. I just had a, a religion. Religious studies professor tell me that 
anime and manga were not academic subjects. This was in the 90s, very early 90s, <laughs> um, when, when it was still taboo to talk about pop culture as a legitimate academic study, especially anime and manga. But Professor Bester was like, that sounds wonderful. What do you think about manga translation? I said, what about manga translation? And he said, are you interested? I'm like, uh, sure. And what had happened was so, and, and Dr. Bester is now at Harvard, but prior to coming to Cornell, he was at Columbia University where he had left behind a graduate student who was about to go to Japan for doing PhD dissertation research. And that person happened to be um, Matt Thorne, who is now Rachel Thorne. And Rachel uh, was working for Viz and needed help while she went to Japan for, for her research. And I guess, uh, I don't know if she had asked Professor Bester or Professor Bester was being proactive, but... Um, once he found out that I was interested in, in translating and in manga and in translating, he hooked me up with Rachel and that's how I got my foot in the door. I mean, I've, I've been incredibly fortunate in my career as a manga translator. I, I'm always flattered that everyone mentions the, the list of notable titles I've translated, but for the most part, I've really just been in the right place at the right time meeting the right person. And this was truly it. And my first ever project was picking up Mezoni Koku, which um, is yes. by Rumiko Takahashi, the same mm-hmm. sensei that your, you know, Skype uh, handle uh, refers yep, to her other works. <laughs> big fan of her works. Yeah. So I was incredibly lucky. Um, Rachel had been the primary translator on Maison, and it was one of the titles that she asked me to take over. So I saw it to the end, and in between, I've been really lucky. I think because I, I can't claim to have worked on all of Takashi Sensei's work, sadly. I would have loved to, but, you know, as you know, her she's also been very prolific. Yeah. But I've worked on um, a little piece of Lum. Uruse Yatsura, One Pound Gospel, and Inuyasha I actually did from beginning to end. Yeah, and that's her longest series. So, like, that that's 56 volumes. That was, like, a 13-year, like, project. Because it started in 95 and ended in 08. And that was one of the, the titles that, that Viz really picked up early on, too. So, we were, I mean, I think we still ran behind Japanese publication, especially... Even uh, we weren't that far behind, I, I believe, in terms of the graphic novels. But certainly, you know, it it runs for a certain uh, for at least a month or two in the magazine in Japan before it becomes the graphic novel volume. So in that sense, we were a bit behind. But it was probably one of the series that Viz ran closer to actual publication um, for the time, at least. Hmm. I think that Viz had released the first chapter first couple chapters as a monthly floppy only a couple months after the japanese debuted which like in the mid 90s was incredibly fast it also appeared in the in the magazine for a while too um and i want to say at america and maybe one of their other magazines but it it was also one of the the series that interestingly was printed in various formats yeah, I mean, because early Inuyasha floppies and volumes, those were, you know, flipped. But 
then uh, after a certain point, they started uh, releasing volumes, you know, in proper uh, right to left. And then they went back and reprinted earlier volumes uh, right to left, too. But, you know, you still can find uh, the left to right editions out there. Uh, like I, when I was getting into Nyasha, I was very confused because one, some volumes would be left or right at the library. Some of them would be, you know, unflipped. And I was like, oh, why is the format just so different between these volumes? I actually didn't remember that because, but I do, I do recall that One Pound Gospel, which I was working on initially almost around the same time or right before Inuyasha, One Pound Gospel definitely was flipped. Cause I remember <laughs> there's a couple times where, I was um, speaking with the editor about how we had to be careful because, of course, One Pound Gospel is a story about a boxer. And if you flip the panels too much, the righty becomes a softpaw or a lefty. So there's there's the little details like that where I have a slide from... Uh, I mean, there's certain some publishers that, depending on the title, will still print um, flip because they're trying to reach a wider, not necessarily manga audience. And for that, there was one where the detective in the story picks up the phone with his right hand in the original, but with his left hand in, in the, um, or not softpaw, southpaw, um, but um, picks up the phone with the left hand in, in the English edition. Yeah, and would you have to, like, change dialogue at all to reflect the fact that, you know, uh, because of the panels being flipped and sometimes characters, you know, left hands become their right hands and all that, that, you know, the, some terminology would have to be adjusted uh, to reflect that. I've fortunately not had to deal so much with terminology. The, the main thing is if the same character is speaking in multiple bubbles in the same panel, sometimes I'd point that out to the editor. So because there, even with flip pages, sometimes they wouldn't necessarily flip all the panels that I would say, well, you know, switch the order of these bubbles, the dialogue in the bubbles, so that it reads more smoothly for, for the, the flipped audience. Yeah, I mean, especially with a lot of uh, word bubbles, like, you know, depending on how the dialogue is spaced out, you could have, like, a lot of text in a smaller bubble, but then... Uh, you know, not a whole lot of text in a larger bubble because in the original it was the opposite way around. But flipped, you gotta try and fit him in to how you're supposed to read them and like what character is speaking, and that can cause some uh formatting issues. One of the hardest things is when there's only like a single or two lines of dialogue in the Japanese. So the artist had drawn, um, also partly because of how how the artist artists may have wanted to lay out the page or the panel it's drawn as a long vertical bubble those are the hardest especially if there's going to be um i try to use shorter words for that but sometimes you have to use a word like different or difficult and it's just so many hyphens yeah i mean because yeah and in, in the original they all the text is written vertically whereas in english it's all horizontally and so when you get those like long vertical balloons. Yeah, I've I've seen that it can be really hard to scrunch a lot of text in there, or you have to really like minimize uh, the text to like a smaller font. I mean, the fortunate thing about Naruto is oftentimes when that happened, the character is screaming something, so we just make it one long scream, and it actually <laughs> looks really beautiful even in English. 
But I'm also very interested, you know, talking about like uh, these early days of translation and some of the changes you'd have to make. Like also in the early days of, you know, manga localization, like uh, translated scripts would often go through uh, rewriters or adapters that would adjust the dialogue to make it more like comic speak. But nowadays those roles are one of the same. So I'm wondering like, your thoughts on like how the approach used to be when you would ha- take your translation and then that would go to an adapter that would tweak it to be more comics like and then nowadays like how how you approach translation with that added step not there so th- that was a really that's a really interesting question because and i think it's very individual based on the translator so for myself personally i've always treated translation as an art that which I need to submit as polished the final product as possible. So it's really not affected me too much directly because I've always tried to include a little bit of rewriting or adaptation when I produce my scripts. Now that also goes with who the rewriter or adapter was or who the editor was at the time. My biggest kind of regret with the early days is the turnaround still ended up being fast enough, even though the overall process was slow because there were so many more steps in the middle and it wasn't as digital as it is now. The process, I still had to turn around the scripts fast enough or because of the communication avenues that were available, I would never really have the chance to talk directly with a rewriter. So I think a lot more may have gotten lost in translation, as it were, between all the various steps. Whereas if I could have spoken directly with the rewriter or adapter, even exchanged emails, and, and, and they could ask me, oh, could you clarify this or could, could you clarify that? Perhaps the final product wouldn't be as jarring to, to the fans, especially the fans that who may have been able to read the material in the original language. But I always try to, to produce... Um, and and there were some early scripts where I would certainly put alternative translations and parentheses to kind of guide what the nuance would be for the translation. There was at least one title, though, where I had the editor finally come back and said, you're driving the rewriter nuts. Please stop doing this. So, oh. uh, well, because I would, it would be pretty much a choose your own adventure, essentially. And it was oh. it was adding too much time, I guess, to the rewriting process. Um, now it's, it's a little bit different because, I mean... So my process hasn't changed in that I still try to produce, I, I would do, um, even when I'm translating, it's not necessarily always one-to-one literal translation to begin with, but I also try to go back when I'm finished the entire chapter and I reread the chapter to make sure it reads smoothly even to me. And sometimes the editor just tweaks a little bit here or there. Sometimes the editor has taken on more of the role of the rewriter or adapter and especially in the case of something like Boruto, where we publish the chapters simultaneous with the magazine, but then have the luxury of also putting out the graphic novel later, I do sometimes engage in conversations with my editor about some of his editing choices and say, hey, you know, I really think we should go back to this or, you know, you had a great idea, but maybe we could t- tweak it further. And... um have a chance to even fine-tune it more before the graphic novel comes out. I see. So you have a lot more, like, direct control of how the final 
uh, product comes out in terms of like the words that appear on the page than you did back in the early days when it was a lot more disconnected. I would not necessarily say control, but I feel like I have a lot more of a voice. And sometimes the final choice isn't always even in the editor's hands. It's in, um, you know, depending on the publisher, depending on the title, sometimes these translations have to even go back and go through the editors in Japan um, for approval. I know certainly for some titles, um, names of character, the romanizations of characters, names and so forth um, also need approval. This varies. This varies widely even within a publisher depending on the title. So I can't necessarily give you specific examples of this. But um, so I, I definitely feel like I've got more of a forum. But I wouldn't necessarily have more control of the process. I see. But I assume that in general that uh, we don't like I think these days translations are much more closer to the original intent than back in the 90s when there was a lot more uh, rewriting going on. I remember, like, I, I was comparing, like, the new edition of the Yurisei Yatsura omnibuses to uh, the 90s uh, floppies, the 90s uh, translation that Viz put out. And uh, in the 90s editions of Yurisei Yatsura, they would rewrite, like, jokes uh, to make them make more sense to Western audiences. Like, they would rewrite, like, Japanese uh, cultural jokes, like jokes about Setsuban, or stuff about uh, other aspects of Japanese culture, and they would uh, try and uh, make them about something that I guess they would think Western audiences would understand more. So, like, there was, there's a Setsuban joke in the first chapter of Yatsura that in the original 90s translation, they changed it to a joke about Halloween. Like, uh, Ataru sees uh, Lum's dad, and he thinks, oh, it's an Odi, I'm going to throw beans at him. Uh, but in the English edition, you know, he's like, oh, it's a trick or treater. I'm going to throw candy at you. And nowadays uh, that, you know, uh, in the new edition of Yurisei Yatsura, they keep the original joke and it's much closer to the original uh, author's intent. So I feel like there's less liberties being taken in translation nowadays. I, I mean, I think it, it still does. I think in, in the big picture, yes, I think it still depends on the publisher and the title. And also, mm. I mean, jokes and humor are one of the biggest challenges that translators and editors face still. And it's because there are cultural nuances that just don't translate. And, you know, I mean, there's some idioms that there is an English equivalent. And when there is, even if it isn't literal to what the Japanese said, if it's the same idiom, I will use the English idiom that's equivalent. But there are other instances when there's some cases where I really do wing it. And I, you know, definitely kind of make a special notation on the side for the editor going, hey, if you have any better brilliant ideas, please, please insert, <laughs> you know, something else in here. Um, the second biggest challenge is sound effects. And it's partly because for certain sound effects, there are many more iterations in Japanese and vice versa. And there are two big schools of separate thought in terms of translating Onomatopoeia, do you use a sound word, even if it makes absolutely, it's not an actual word in English? Or do you use words that can't, that are English words, but that don't necessarily mimic the sound? So for example, you have words like crunch or smash, which are used in American comics as well. So you can substitute that. But then the one that I know a lot of other translators also bring up is 
they use a specific term for silence in Japan. And sometimes it's just dot, dot, dot. But a lot of times they put shin, and it means when the entire room falls quiet. And I've seen some translation or some English editions where they substitute shin with dot, dot, dot. And other times, times, and I personally use like silence or hmm. Um, <laughs> but uh, that also is very dependent on the publishers. Um, Viz, for example, tends to like to use sound effects and onomatopoeia that it's, that are used or, or look like they could be used in American comics. I've mm-hmm. seen other publishers or worked with other publishers that want Romanized sound effects. So they're not even truly kind of Americanized onomatopoeia. They're literally a trans-Romanization of the original Japanese sound effect. And some publishers on top of that will then put underneath in parentheses what it, the English equivalent would be. And then there were a couple of publishers, I believe Tokyo Pop may have been one, where they didn't translate the sound effects at all. They left them in the original Japanese. And that's something that Viz uniquely does is there usually isn't time to do this for, for the Samuel Pub, but when they publish the graphic novels, Viz always re-letters the Japanese sound effects with what English sound effect they've chosen to replace it with. So it, yeah. it's seamless from an art perspective. Whereas, like I said, some of the other publishers, they'll preserve the original Japanese sound effect art and just put subtitles below them. And this is a really great job in those redraws. Like, they they really know how to match it close to the original Japanese sound effect, even if the shape of, you know, the sound effect is different. Like, they really know how to kind of just carry over that same impact that the original had. So I always think they do a great job. I, so I, I think was, it's you know, partly because they've just been doing it for so long. So their letters are very experienced at that. I mean, I'm always amazed at the job that... Le- the letters do but at least for the projects i've worked on for them i also try to keep that in mind when i translate the sound effects to try to either use the same amount of letters or the same shape letters that would meld more or or be more seamlessly integrated yeah it's all about uh, just trying to keep it as close to the original as you can while still carrying over the same meaning uh, and context for the English reader. And especially, I think it's really impressive nowadays that it's done without as much, you know, uh, redrawing or obscuring of the original art. Like in the uh, early 90s editions of stuff like Yurisiyatsura, like I would notice that, you know, word balloons would be like redrawn. And then oftentimes, like uh, some of the original art would be lost in the process of like adding in uh, new sound effects and new word balloons. But nowadays, you know, they're able to keep the original art, for, uh, but like still carry over and, you know, do these sound effect changes and and uh, make translations and make all the text fit within like the original word balloons. It's a lot of effort, but I think it really preserves like the original tension of the author so well. I think a lot of it also has to do with the advance in technology as well. I remember yeah. hearing about you know, back in the 90s and so forth, where even in Japan to this day, though, there are a lot of artists that don't produce their manga digitally. But especially back in the day, they didn't have, 
the what digital files they had were scans of the original hand-drawn pages to begin with. And even then, sometimes they either lost or, or had not preserved the files. So I would hear stories of editors or other staff at different companies that would literally steam the pages loose. You know, they would take a, take a volume of the Tonkobon and use steam to loosen the glue that held the pages together and literally hand scan page by page the pages of the graphic novel to send to the translators to translate. And then also, and they would white out the dialogue that was in them or the uh, sound effects and put in, layer in the, the English um, dialogue over it. Whereas now, you know, the files, I'm sure, come digitally directly to the American side editors. And with a few clicks of the button, they can separate out the dialogue as a separate layer. And mm -hmm. with another click of the button, erase all the Japanese dialogue. And then the letter ha has a nice clean blank palette to... Uh, or, or bored to, to layer on the, the new English dialogue. Yeah, I mean, digital processes have definitely made making changes like this so much easier. And I'm, they've really streamlined it so there isn't as many steps and any as much like redrawing on like the original, like copies of the original pages, like as printed out. And yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's pretty incredible what, digital uh tools have done in terms of you know helping uh expedite and like kind of uh, improve like manga localization practices i mean i had the fortune of being in japan during one of the um so shonen jump recently celebrated their 50th anniversary and uh they had special exhibits um almost like mini museum exhibits to celebrate this and some of the goods they were selling were reprints of original uh, manga pages and it's interesting because you know these manga pages from like the 90s and so forth they would like i didn't i hadn't realized that they were literally typesetting the dialogue the japanese dialogue in the bubbles originally also and you see like what were um it wasn't white out specifically, but it was like those square white sticker sheets that you uh -huh. cut out to the shape that you needed and, and stuck on almost like screen tones, except they're blank to cover yeah. like the dialogue that they decide to edit and change. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. And nowadays, you know, if you were to make a rewrite like that, you wouldn't have to like stick something on the original page or uh, ink that or white out that out. Like you could just uh, do it all in Photoshop. And yeah, it's you can still preserve the original page without having to make edits to it, but you can still make the edits uh, digitally. So I think that's really incredible. But kind of on the subject of uh you know, localization choices, like with sound effects. I was wondering your thoughts on like localizing dialects, like Japanese, like dialects that, you know, uh, it might be difficult to find like an English equivalent of, uh, for instance, in your translation of Ayako, uh, the Osama Tezuka manga, where you translated the, the dialects of the family in that series, which was like a more of a country, kind of uh i don't know if it was exactly like kanzai uh but it was like you translated the uh, how the characters spoke in that series to kind of like a more 
uh, country bumpkiny southern kind of uh, style speaking for the English edition. So I was just wondering your thoughts on making uh, translation choices when it comes to dialects like that. So that's another hot topic of debate among translators, in fact. And I do have a kind of handy excuse in my back pocket where I'm, my family is originally from the Kansai area, specifically Osaka. So one of the big controversies has been when the Osaka or Kansai dialect is translated as Southern. And my argument is like, well, I'm from Osaka, so I, if I decide to use Southern English, then that is my birthright. <laughs> um, as well as the fact that the Kansai dialect has been, I mean, Kansai is geographically southwest of the Tokyo or Kanto area, first of all, so it is a little bit Southern. And it's also referred to as having slight drawl and being slightly spoken slightly slower. So I said, well, those things all match up with what I know for the Southern U.S. English dialect. And so I feel that that's a perfectly legitimate choice. Now, for Ayako in, uh, in particular, the story takes place in the Tohoku area. So slightly north, um, northeast, northwest, of, and, and further northeast, northwest of the Kanto area. And I did go with somewhat of a, it was not pure Southern. It was not pure anything. And I do, my understanding is that there were readers that wrote into Vertical and complained about my choice. And I'm very grateful to Yanni, who is the um, one of the head editors at Vertical, for kind of going to bat for me. And defending my choice. And he was the direct editor on Ayako. And he said, look, I agreed with her choice. And that's why that's what ended up in print. And if you have anything to say about it, you have to go through me, through me first. Um, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing um, because I have not actually been able to find the actual comment and response. But he essentially um, told me that he had my back. And I was very grateful the interesting backstory to that, the subsequent backstory to that, is I since found out from some manga scholars that the quote-unquote Tohoku dialect that Tezuka-sensei himself uses is made up. It's not actual Tohoku dialect. He made it up too. So in that sense, I feel perfectly justified in having made up the English um, language dialect that I used because, hey, if Tezuka Sensei can make it up, why can't I? You know? Yeah. <laughs> but it is it is an interesting dilemma for sure. And certainly the Rose of Versailles, which is I, I've now found out is hopefully finally will be released starting this fall. Yes. We made some language choices where I inserted some very simple French words that every American should know, like, we, oui, merci, you know, things like that. I interspersed it here and there into the dialogue. And again, I, I'm curious to see how readers react to that. I mean, I'm looking forward to that uh, Rosa Versailles release. But yeah, it is very interesting, like, especially in that case where Tessica made up a dialect, like to, the decision, like kind of to try and figure out an equivalent that would work in English is really fascinating to me. 
But yeah, it's it's really all about, again, trying to convey meaning. And I think you were like very on point there to uh, localize uh, the dialogue in Ayaka the way you did. I think it uh, carries over the meaning and the flavor of the original well. Uh, it, it sounded, it seemed very appropriate to me, but kind of on the subject of, uh, Rose of Size and Ayako, you know, those are both very historically based manga where like, uh, you know, they're, they're drawing upon, uh, history and, uh, you know, stuff that the author is putting into that is like based on real world facts or people or characters. And so I'm kind of wondering like when you're you know, working on series like those, like, you know, that intertwine fact and fiction, you know, do you, how, what kind of historical research do you have to do, uh, you know, to make sure that the terminology you use, you know, is accurate, like, especially in cases where, you know, uh, where a character that is, you know, based on a fiction, uh, a real life person is so heavily fictionalized, like in Rose of Versailles. Yes. And it's it's funny because I was just um, discussing this yesterday with a couple of Hmong sw- scholars who happened to be in New York City for a conference. But um, one of the other big challenges in my career in translation, and, and sadly, uh, it was part of what delayed the initial script turnover for Rosa Versailles. And in fact, for Rosa Versailles, at least, I was, uh, I did the first, so we took the nine volume perfect edition and it's been um shrunken or it's not shrunken because we haven't cut content itself but it's being released as a five volume omnibus and i so i worked on the first one and a half of the five volume edition which works out to the first three volumes of the nine volume edition and the very last volume and i was actually replaced for the for the middle section because i kind of got too bogged down over the research because I, I tend to be kind of a perfectionist in terms of my research. And with Ayako, it was more set in a historical period without being necessarily 100% based on that period. The main story is a fictionalized story that just happens to take place in the immediate post-war period in Japan that overlaps with the with the American occupation of Japan. Um, so there there's some historical references. There are a couple of incidents that get woven into the story that were based on actual incidents, which for Tesca was contemporary for his period. I mean, he lived through that actual period. So it was a little bit easier to tease apart what he used creative license, artistic license on, and what was fact. The difficulty was because there's still, at the time that I was translating it, wasn't as much accessible on the internet or at least that I could I had the skills to find that some of the incidents I just got bare bones kind of outline of what the incident was or who the historical figure was and so some of it I still had to to kind of lean back on the editor and say look I I tried to look this up but I'm really not finding much about it but if I recall correctly there was enough that was clearly not related to the original historical evidence that I didn't get too bogged down. But with Rose of Versailles, the entire story is intimately interwoven with some of the actual history. And it wasn't just the historical incidents or or people, but the actual timeline as well. And what I think complicated it also, though, is that one of the main characters, Oscar, is completely fiction. And yet, 
Oscar's father was an actual historical figure, and a lot of the other characters were historical, and yet some of what also complicated things is that some of the characters and incidents happened in actual history, but not quite the way they're worked into the story, or they were from right before Antoinette's period or right after, and yet they were integral within the story of Rosa Versailles. So I definitely got way too bogged down in trying to tease out what was fact, what was fiction, what was fact and fiction at the same time. And unfortunately, it did lead to a little bit of a delay initially in getting the script back to the publisher. The other thing that's interesting is that from what I understand, uh, Ikeda-sen says inspiration was a biography of Marie Antoinette that was written by Stefan Zweig, who is a Australian Jewish writer who was born in Vienna in 1881. So he... He himself was not contemporary with Marie Antoinette, and he, I'm presuming he wrote the book, I'm actually trying to find out what language the book was initially, but I'm, I'm almost positive this book was originally not published in English, and so Ikeda-sensei read it, most likely the Japanese edition. I managed to find the same biography in my local library as an English translation. And I could see how some of the things were literally just pictorial depictions of what Zweig wrote, which was fascinating. But, you know, she was she was taking the ideas from another person's interpretation. Well, I mean, history is always someone's interpretation, but right. from a particular interpretation also. And I don't know how much, even though this is supposed to be a biography of Marie Antoinette, how much was based on actual research or not. Right. So there's multiple layers of, of possible room for either error or creative license, whichever way you want to look at it. And it, it's difficult. I mean, certainly the internet has helped a lot in that research. But as you know, I always point out to Wikipedia and Google search are only as good as the people who post information. And I didn't have the luxury of time to actually go to a physical library and look up micro fiche of actual newspaper articles and so forth. So, you know, I'm basing my research on what may be flawed information as well. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like an incredibly involved process because you're trying to trace back to get as many first sources as possible. But there's a lot of filtering through different secondhand sources. And some of those secondhand sources are what Ikeda-san is referring to. But they might not be like accurate to the historical uh, reality. So I, I can imagine like the research process being incredibly complicated for something that is, you know, uh, you're referencing history that is in French, uh, but it's uh, but it's an interpretation by a Japanese author. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I can recognize words here and there, and that's about it. And that was the other thing, too. Sometimes when I would do my research, there would be extensive articles on French Wikipedia. And my husband reads French a little bit. So I sometimes I toss a little section to him and like, could you give me a general gist of what this is saying is irrelevant? But um, what's also interesting is when we were, especially with the fictional characters, trying to find, figure out the best, most accurate way to spell their names Romanized was mm. 
you know, another, uh, it's a smaller challenge, but certainly a challenge. Also, we in America use the English anglicization of these names. And so sometimes, you know, one of the creative decisions I made, which we'll see if it remains in the final print edition, is before Marie Antoinette comes to France, I tried to use the German the, or the Austrian German spelling of her name. And then because Marie Antoinette is really kind of the anglicization of the French of her name. So it was kind of interesting to figure out, well, should we use the, the, the French spelling, the German spelling, the English spelling? Uh, what if all three are different? That kind of thing. And then also, not so much with Ayako also because there there wasn't necessarily fandom or previous edition. But with Rosa Versailles, with there having been fan translations, you had the very initial first two volumes translated into English in, I want to say, the 80s or 90s. I forget now exactly when it came out, which I believe Fred Schott had translated. And then you have the anime and you have this incredibly broad European fandom. So there were a lot of kind of spellings and interpretations that the fandom had already taken for granted. And that was kind of like, how much do we try to please the existing fans? How much do we want to not necessarily, you know, I don't want to say correct, but how, how much can we tweak it without angering fans who expect it, things to be spelled a certain way or, you know, one of the big things is Oscar is often known as Lady Oscar. But in the manga, especially, clearly there are times when she's referred to in the female and and chastises the speaker that, you know, oh, don't let my father hear this. He he doesn't like when people use uh, refer to me in, in, with the female pronoun that we felt that we had to use the male pronoun or the male titles to refer to her. We also, you know, like I said, uh, we inserted a few French words here and there into the dialogue. And another um, decision with, with one of my earlier editors on the project was the two editors I and researchers I initially worked with were very much uh, very literal and very language focused. And they didn't want me to use English words that didn't exist at the time that the novel set Whoa. or that the story set. So... You know, no, um, what's a, no come on or no, um, oh, I'm trying to remember some actual examples, but there, there are terms like, oh, well, um, rad, you know, um, but there, there are certain slang that, that have come into play over the years. And, you know, we're talking the time of the French Revolution. So there's been a long time for language to evolve. Right. And. So it was kind of interesting to it was a it was a lesson in English for me to to look up some of the history behind the words themselves to figure out is this too modern of a word that we can use it in the dialogue. Wow. So you put a lot of attention to detail to make sure like in the translated English dialogue, like this is a speak that would that would be accurate to the time period. It wouldn't be modern colloquialisms. That's incredible. The amount of like attention to detail that is that has been put into the translation of this. I mean, I 
uh, you had to take so many different factors into consideration. That is not an enviable position, but it sounds like a true labor of love. And I'm really excited to read it. But you also understand why that would end up taking a lot of time, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But... Yeah, I mean, for a work like the Rose of Asias, which is so, you know, important in manga history, you know, it is like a, a highly anticipated work that is, you know, getting its first like uh, wide English release, you know, for the full series over here. I think it, I mean, I'm glad that you, uh, that the, you and the team of Uwanon have put in the effort to, uh, you know, make it like the most uh, accurate translation of Ikeda's original tension as possible. Well, we hope so. And we really, we really do hope that Geta Sensei would really like our work. Um, I understand that we're approaching final lettering and approvals, so I, I'm I'm actually nervous and yet excited um, to see how um, Ikeda Sensei, if what kind of feedback she gives us. But uh, you would I would you say that is definitely the most uh, involved you've had to do in terms of doing research for a translation project? It sounds like it. At this point, yes. Um, in terms of historical research, like I said. I, you know, before that, it was definitely Ayako. But, you know, even a, a more kind of light and fluffy title, like Cage of Eden, which was put out by Kodansha USA, now Kodansha Comics, that was a labor of love for a different reason. You know, it wasn't the most commercially successful series, sadly. But it was a lot of fun because I like to describe the series as Lost meets Jurassic Park meets Lord of the Flies. In short, it's the story of a group of high schoolers who take a school trip to Guam. And on the way back, they kind of somehow get caught up in some sort of wormhole type phenomenon. And they find themselves crash landing on this mysterious tropical island that seems to be in the middle of nowhere Pacific Ocean. But it's populated by all these animals that should have been extinct millennia ago. And various things ensue, but what was fascinating and totally interesting for me is is being able to research all these extinct animals. And, you know, getting their Latin names right and making sure that, that we're not necessarily just anglicizing the names, but we're actually using the English common name as well as the scientific, accurate scientific name for them. and you know, the the author, and that's the one thing that I'm always amazed with manga artists is the amount of research they do before they create their series in terms of the detail, both visually and also factually sometimes in portraying, like, in this case, extinct animals. Uh, in the case of my favorite series from a personal standpoint, which I'm hoping will get licensed and I'll get to work on, the Japanese title is Dobutsu no Oishasan, which translates to The Animal Doctor. And mm -hmm. that is a story about two high school students, or two, two men from when they're seniors or, uh, or juniors in high school, all the way to them graduating from veterinary college in Japan. And my understanding is that the author, creator, went and immersed herself at Hokkaido University Veterinary School for however many weeks or months to to literally she lived uh, the, her life as if she were a veterinary student 
um, wow. in order to draw the series. And I, I had the fortune of being in Japan and at Hokkaido University a few, I want to say a few years after the release of the series, but not long enough that, I mean, some of the students could still say, oh, this so-and-so character is based on so-and-so senpai, and the prof- this professor is actually an amalgamation of this professor and that professor. And it was ama- it was amazing to hear the um, amount, like if you were in the know, you actually could tell who the characters had been based on and so forth. Wow. I, wow. I, you know, just hearing you describe your, uh, all these translation experiences you've had and just and in general, it seems to me like the job of being like a, a translator, you know, it's not just enough to know the Japanese language skills. You really need to be a great, you know, uh, researcher. You need to be like willing to like kind of get involved at your hands learning to learning like the subject matter that uh you know your the of the books that you're working on uh yeah it seems like it it requires just a lot of uh savvy in terms of being able to research things being able to learn new things uh and to me it's it's all sounds just really incredible i want to say that um and yet I I will admit that it makes me a fairly slow translator at times, and that has been one of the biggest criticism I know has been leveled against me is that I can be a little bit too detail-oriented sometimes, and also that I have had, especially in the past, a penchant for missing deadlines, which is kind of a, a well, not even kind of, it, it's a very big no-no in the industry. So... While I think that based on the project, there there is a call for that sometimes, it can be a liability as well. So I'm perfectly willing to say that, you know, I know many translators who, who do the research as well, but in order to stay alive in the industry, perhaps it's not, perhaps something more towards the middle is better than the, the, than the one end extreme that I might, might fall into. Right. Uh, time management skills are probably, uh, you know, are definitely just in any creative profession and a very important thing, uh, especially I- I'm sure in the age of uh, simulpubs and, you know, same day and date releases with Japan. That's especially uh, essential. Yes. And also the flexibility in, in terms of the simulpub, the flexibility to go back and correct yourself. I mean, the simulpub work I've been involved in started um, halfway or or perhaps more towards the tail end of Naruto. But um, especially, you know, on a series like that, with a lot of fans, with a lot of expectations, it, it sucked. It sucked to not know what's coming next. And being wrong sometimes with the decision, especially in Japanese, there are gender pronouns, but there it's very easy to have entire dialogue, pages of dialogue, without using gender pronouns. So there be a time or two when, when a character is being referred to that we've never seen before, or we don't even have a name because they're just being referred to as that character, that person, or that ninja. And we have to take a stab at what the gender pronoun is. And we've been wrong, you know? Or we think that the plot is leading towards a certain conclusion, and there's a reference to it that could, that has a nuance where it could be ending A or ending B, and we'd have to kind of, we we finally have to take a stab at it and we choose a and it turns out you know it went in direction b so that that's one of the you know and and i think you know if there were the time and and 
the capacity to directly communicate with the creator about what their plans are, maybe that could be minimized. But certainly, I don't know. I certainly don't know whether the even the creator actually knows which way it's going at the time that I need to ask that question. Yeah, I mean that's another interesting point is that there's just not often a time to communicate with the creators to get clarification on their end. And certainly, you know, the other problem is even if it's a series that the entirety of it has been published, if it is a long series, like, you know, more than 20 volumes, I don't always have the time to read all 20 volumes before I start translating volume one. And I'll be at volume 15. And this happened with Cage of Eden, um, which, uh, let me think, I think it's 20... It's either 20, yeah, it's 21 volumes, if I remember correctly. But I remember with Cage of Eden, um, I got to volume 14 or 15 and realized I made a gaffe in volume three or four. Interesting. And so, like, did you have to go in and fix that later on or? Well, you know, whenever I do catch something like that, I immediately notify the editor. And the decision ends up being usually with the editor. Fortunately, in the case of some titles... There are reprints done, so we correct it for the reprint. In the meantime, we try to insert like an errata note somewhere, whether it's online or in the next volume that comes from when I, or the volume I'm working on when I realize the error. Uh, so there are various steps we can take. The, the easiest definitely is if, if it's something that hasn't gone to print yet or is something that we can reprint, that's the best option. But that, that's certainly very particular to, to a particular series or a particular publisher. Right. But yeah, I mean, just the process of uh, localizing comics is it involves so many steps that it's not surprising that sometimes that uh, mistakes can fall through the claps. Uh, uh, it's like even just sometimes, you know, uh, like in, there might be like proofreading spelling errors or just some uh, weird formatting things like I've been reading uh, the Viz editions of Banana Fish and, you know, they recently reprinted it. But like in the early volumes, especially like there are times where I'm noticing, oh, there's a there's a spelling mistake here. Uh, there's some grammatical mistake here. And these things are just like, you know, they just uh, kind of fall through the cracks sometimes because, you know, uh, it is it can it's a very complicated process. Uh, the worst yeah. one. And I found one or two in, in, in titles that I've translated to where uh and there's a couple famous examples of this where literally either the translator missed the translation or was not sure which way to go with a certain translation and so we insert a note and that note gets lettered into the bubble and somehow the editor doesn't catch it so there's one that says insert dialogue here (laughs) you know (laughs) as, as a dialogue bubble and it's like oh no wow uh, I have never encountered that while uh, I've read uh, manga, but that, yeah, that's I don't think so either. Very interesting. It sounds like a, something that I might expect from an old Tokyo Pop release. Uh, I know that they had some yeah. uh, <laughs> issues. No, ah. this this has happened across publishers, across works. <laughs> yep. Wow. 
Well, manga translation uh, it is very complicated, much more than uh, what a lot of us would assume. But like you know, just from everything you describe, you know, it's it's I really appreciate all the work that uh, you put into it, and all the work of translators working in the industry are always doing, and and the work they've been putting into the series they've been working on, and you know, making something for you know us English readers to enjoy. I really appreciate that. But uh, I also want to talk about your work in interpreting because, uh, as we mentioned before, you've interpreted for so many uh, Japanese guests, you know, including uh, a lot of mangaka and anime industry professionals. You interpreted for uh, Masashi Kishimoto, uh, creator of Naruto at, for New York Comic Con a few years back. Uh, and you've met uh, creators like Akira Toriyama. And I was just wondering, like, you know, what are some of the challenges that come with interpreting live for Japanese guests, you know, on panels or for interviews? And then I'm also wondering, like, what are some of your favorite memories meeting Japanese creators? So, um, interesting enough, I think, you know, I really credit the fact that I was working on Naoto translations to lead to Viz hiring me for um, interpreting for Kishimoto Sensei. Kishimoto Sensei is an interesting example, too, where we're actually the same age. And Mm -hmm. that's happening more and more now as I'm getting older but the creators are just as you know the new creators especially are younger and younger and <laughs> so there's definitely um coming a time when i will find myself working with a creator that i could have birthed myself but uh the main thing is pretty much i would say 90 95% of the creators i've met are so down to earth and so human and and it's it's great and in fact even the remaining percentage, it's more that they're kind of introverted. That is really interesting. I mean, that's part of why they went into the creative work that in the, into the profession that they did is because they weren't necessarily people, people, and um, comfortable with with interacting um, outside of the drawn page. And um, this is more true, somewhat, for manga creators as opposed to anime creators, although even with anime creators, you know, they often say, you know, they've always been drawing for a long time. They, they wanted to go into some sort of creative profession and they either stumbled onto anime or they answered a call for, for new talent and got into the industry that way. The heartening, the really, really heartwarming thing working with Kishimoto Sensei and Kishimoto Sensei himself also remarked on this. There were so many fans that gathered at New York Comic Con from outside New York and outside even the U.S. If I remember correctly, we had some Russian fans. We had at least a few fans from Mexico and, you know, Europe. And there were so many fans who would come up and say, I was at a really dark point in my life when I discovered Naruto. And Naruto helped me pull through. And a few fans even said Naruto literally saved my life because... I was contemplating ending my life when I when I found Naruto and reading his adventures and knowing that he battled adversity and pulled through helped give me the will to keep living. Oh my gosh. That also just totally blew me away and and blew Sensei away too. Recently I think it's finally changed but 
a lot of manga and anime cre creators may uh, may know that their work is is going abroad and is popular abroad, but they don't necessarily really tangibly feel it until they come to the U.S. to a U.S. convention or to a European convention, and they actually interact directly with the fans and seeing the emotions all positive that the fans show. It it just really strikes them. And also the amount of knowledge that some of the fans retain, the really like, you know, in some ways really small details that they'll ask questions about during the Q and A, the creators sometimes are almost embarrassed. They're like, I'm really sorry. I don't remember, you know, I don't remember that I even, that the scene even happened, but it, it blows them away to see how devoted the fans are to their work. And the challenges of interpreting for them. I, I often point out to people that just because you're a good translator does not always make you a good interpreter and vice versa. It is different because with translation, even with Samuel Pub and, and quick turnarounds, you still can sit and deliberate over your word choices. Whereas while you're interpreting for someone on stage, especially if it's live on stage or an interview that you can't necessarily go back and correct yourself, you really have to be on point and you have to be on your A game and you also have to have kind of a dictionary in your head, not just for the literal translation, but also the nuance that you want to make sure comes through from what the person is saying. And and this is, I think, not necessarily unique to interpreting for a manga or anime creator, but for any profession, but especially so for anime and manga, because it's it's an the medium is an art form itself. The other complicated thing is is the terminology. There are very specific terms, you know, the type of pens that are used, or these days the type of tablets and and apps that are being used that you kind of need to keep on top of. And then another challenge, more so with anime, I want to say, but even with manga is the localization of titles. So a fan or an interviewer might ask about specific series or title that the creator worked on, but the English title is completely different from the original Japanese title. And also having like a smartphone or a tablet handy, they can quickly look things up is very helpful. Um, and, and, you know, even the best interpreter, we do stumble every once in a while. But you have to be a good interpreter has to be comfortable speaking in front of crowds. And, and, and this is for most intents and purposes, anime and, and manga creator interpreting is what is known as consecutive translation, as opposed to things like when one is at the United Nations, that's simultaneous translation and interpreting. That's a whole nother ball game almost because that one you literally are interpreting and translating what someone is saying as they're saying it. And if you don't have a pre-prepared script, some languages may be easier than others, but with a, a language like Japanese, where the sentence structure is almost pure opposite of the equivalent English sentence structure, it, it's like sometimes you almost can't be exactly simultaneous because you don't know where the sentence is going. <laughs> you need to have that pre-prepared script in order to do like the simultaneous translation, it sounds like. like Because, yeah, if you were just to translate like as they were speaking and follow by what they're saying, what would result would be kind of an incoherent English sentence. 
you know, you might have to go back and re re say something. And that's also why even with, with the, um, consecutive, I do put stimulations on the event planners where I say, I don't want to handle more than two guests at a time. I've, I have handled up to four guests speaking at a time, but that's usually when we try to schedule it so that they're answering the same question one after another. But the problem with handling more than one person at the time also is if they get really comfortable and start speaking over each other, then you're shot, you know? And the other thing that I say is I don't want to be on continuously for more than an hour and a half, tops two hours at a time. When people do simul uh, interpreting, my understanding is that there's at least two interpreters and they switch out every 20 minutes. But, you know, often with these panels, I mean, thankfully, a lot of the longer panels, it's because there's a screening in the middle. So there's a little bit of a break. But I also say, hey, if you have me on, you can have me on two one hour panels back to back, but no more than that. Don't get I need a, you know, half hour break, partly just for biological needs, too, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I do try to s set some ground rules, especially with events that aren't necessarily used to having interpreters. But um, another challenge definitely is the creators themselves, if they haven't, if this is their first convention and they haven't done much public speaking, is oftentimes they're not used to working with an interpreter, perfectly natural. But sometimes I, I will have to say, um, I don't mean to be rude, but could you speak in short sentences and only speak about two or three short sentences at a time because I've also had guests who, you know, whether they're nervous or they get excited, will drone on for three or four minutes. Mm -hmm. And first of all, you know, the fans start getting a little restless because if they don't understand Japanese, they're just sitting through this whole speech in Japanese without knowing a single thing that's being said. But also for us interpreters, I, I personally have uh, as much as possible have a notepad to scribble even key points down. But the longer they speak, the more likely we will not we will miss some kernel I, that we won't be able to relate to the fans yeah i i mean if someone's speaking for that long in a, a language you don't understand and you're just trying to keep up with them like yeah it's it's hard to take because you're not just writing down what they're saying you're like writing down how to translate what you're saying so there's like an extra mental step involved than just pure dictation so like it, i it, it has to be incredibly challenging to keep up with on the one hand, you know, the favorite memories, when I think, well, um, if I share the same types of humor that the creator does, it's incredibly rewarding because we'll actually, like, there'll be times when I've, I've literally, like, be interpreting something and we'll almost finish each other's sentences in a weird way. Or I love being able to interpret for somebody that uses colorful language. And I get to use colorful language in English and not be ashamed about it. <laughs> uh, I had one um, creator in when I was uh, doing the new people opening in San Francisco. And the creator had unfortunately been under the weather getting on the plane in Japan. And he was going on about how, you know, American medicine and American medical professionals are amazing. I got a shot of antibiotics and it cleared up everything right away. And what he actually said was, you know, I got a shot of antibiotics in my rear end. And <laughs> so I got to use buttocks. I said, 
I got a shot of antibiotics in my buttocks and I feel so much better. Um, so that, yeah, that was, I mean, and I've had other people say you could have just said a asterisk asterisk, but I was like, I didn't want to be too vulgar, you know, but it, it's that kind of, I, I, I love, I mean, I think the reason why I love doing what I do is because I love words and word, I love word play. And so that, that's a fun example of that. Um, I've also, um, seen times when some of the creators, they want to surprise the audience. So they'll make an effort to, to say something, um, in English. And I had a colleague who was interpreting for this particular artist and she, as a joke, reinterpreted back into Japanese, you know, on stage. <laughs> and, and I thought that, I thought that was hilarious. Um, so there, there are a lot of things and, and being able to learn, I think, Sadly, some of the stuff I can't speak about because they were told to me off the record. But one of the great things about working with some of these creators is as a fangirl of their work myself, you know, I get to ask the questions I've always wanted to learn. But, you know, why did you go in this direction for how the story ended? Or what was the meaning of this little like toy or little flower in the corner? Did Was it symbolic or was it just the afterthought, you know? I get to have some of my dream questions answered. And that must be really awesome. Like, what are your favorite, like, instances where you were able to ask, like, a question like that to a guest? Sometimes, uh, let's see. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but um, when I am able to get autographs from the creators, I started out not meaning to do this, but I ended up stumping them because some of the char- my favorite characters are not the main characters or not the most they, they might have been popular characters but they were not usually the headline characters so with um toyama sensei i asked him to draw uh the sage cutting the cat mm. sage and he actually said oh my i hope i can remember how to draw him <laughs> <laughs> and because i had cut in from toyama sensei when i met kishimoto sensei i was like could you draw me pakun the pug <laughs> and you know, the, the difference in it was either 10 or 15 years between is that Kishimoto Sensei actually pulled out his phone and said, apologies, and actually did an <laughs> internet search for Pakun so he could um, accurately draw the character for me. So that's a fun one. That's awesome. And I like that you asked both of them for uh, drawings of animal characters from those series. <laughs> Very and that's really some of my um, stories. Uh, <laughs> Like, um, one of the, um, more recent ones is last year at New York Comic Con, uh, we had, I work, I work a lot with Sunrise and, uh, we had some of the creators from Cowboy Bebop. And so, you know, one of the things was why Corgis? Why, why, why was, uh, Ayn, um, or not Ayn, um, or is yeah, it Ayn? Yeah, the name of the yeah. dog. Why is Ayn a Corgi? And, uh. I guess it was based on a friend, a friend of one of the creators had a corgi. But, um, in reverse, interesting enough, having Ayn, um, as a character made the character designer really like corgis and get a corgi of their own. Oh, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So a lot of times we, I do end up talking about personal or professional animals in, in the creator's career too. <laughs> nice. It's awesome that you're able to kind of intertwine your two careers and interests in that way. 
But yeah, I mean, you've uh, shared just so much awesome knowledge about translation and your experiences and interpreting. I guess I think we're winding down uh, on the interview now, but I, I wanted to ask you, you've been in the industry for like uh, 25 years now. And I was wondering, like, what your thoughts are on like the state of the manga industry nowadays, like how it's changed. And uh, do you think it's easier for a translator to break into the industry nowadays than back when you started? And uh, I guess just some, what advice would you recommend for people who'd like to go into translation as a profession? So it's it's interesting to be asked this question now in 2019, because even a few years ago, I might have had a slightly different response. The, the thing that hasn't changed is that the manga industry seems to be as strong as ever, which is really heartening um, to know, and not just from a personal job security standpoint, but just, I, I mean... It's a wonderful medium. Uh, I know that the industry is suffering a little bit in Japan where companies are really starting to look into digital publishing more and more because the print medium is just not as successful. I mean, and also partly because people are living in smaller spaces. They, they're trying to avoid clutter and so forth. So um, I think we are seeing more and more progression into digital publishing. We're starting to see trends in also self-publishing even in Japan. And how that's going to change the industry itself for translators, I'm not quite sure which way it'll go yet. We are also seeing because of digital publishing and according to some publishers, there isn't that much of an initial cost difference, at least right now as of yet, uh, between printing English editions uh, on paper versus online. But that may also cause certain changes in the way the industry is handled. In terms of right. a, a, a person who wants to go into manga translation, in some ways I think it's gotten easier now, which is the part of the answer that may have differed a few years ago, because of companies like Crunchyroll who have so much work available. And there are a lot more manga competitions and so forth where part of the prize package is being given a chance to break in the industry. And so I think there are more opportunities. Certainly back in the middle of my career, a lot of it was physical legwork going to a convention like New York Comic Con and going from publisher booth to publisher booth and asking if they're interested, if, if they have work to be farmed out. Um, and there seems to be less of that. Uh, I still tell people, if you really want to do manga translation, just become a strong translator, period. I still feel the majority of the money to be earned is in the realm of business, finance, law, medicine. Oftentimes, for, for, for everything except medicine, it's it, it's probably both ways, but with medicine especially, and the reason why I don't do much medical translation myself is that there's still so much more work into Japanese rather than into English. And so, and that I'm definitely as a trans, I interpret fairly uh, equally both ways, but with translation, I'm much stronger Japanese to English than English to Japanese. I also would still say that if someone wants to continue it as their main breadwinning profession that they should look into something other than manga or anime and do anime and manga on the side or go into editing um more and more companies 
uh, publishers have uh, people who at least can read Japanese to a certain extent as editors. And I think that's really important to have editors that are familiar enough with both languages. They obviously, if the source, if the um, final print language is English, they should be strongest in English. Maybe even a degree in English, which what used to be the the requirement. I don't know how much it is still, but should have a firm basis in English, including all aspects of the language, but still be familiar enough with Japanese language and Japanese culture that you don't need a a separate translator to proof the translator's work for the accuracy. But it, yeah, I think if if as long as you're doing it more as a hobby or as a side job, I think it is overall easier to break into the industry. But in terms of making it your living, I think aiming to be something on the editorial level, or even if you become fluent enough or capable enough, possibly, you know, on the licensing side is, I think, much more viable as a long-term career if within the that industry. Otherwise, I would des- definitely recommend that that one becomes flexible enough and, and facile enough with the language to do work outside and and most of my interpreting work now actually is less so the events like conventions because with the fan conventions unfortunately it is it, it's also a much uh, labor of love where we're we're essentially volunteers i do ask that my expenses are covered but i have not at least from the the convention side i don't get paid to interpret at conventions which is no. why i've started working more directly with the anime production companies and I get brought in as an independent contractor from the outside. And I do a lot of interpreting now locally in the New York city area for still Japan related Japan society, Japan foundation, but not necessarily on pop culture subjects. Um, because again, there's more opportunity and better pay that way. I see. So you recently interpreted uh, for the staff of the new City Hunter film at Anime Boston earlier this year. Were you paid for that work or was that also volunteer work? Um, so with Anime Boston, I was still listed, I believe, as staff for the convention, but I was brought in by Sunrise. And part of the freedom that that gives me is that I can work just for the Sunrise guests. Whereas if I, if I'm beholden as a staff of the convention, the convention has every right and they do have that right to assign me where the need is greatest. So I was, I was actually, I'm, um, I don't have my full year schedule yet, but I have been working with, um, Sunrise for several of the conventions and also for, um, the, for-profit events such as New York Comic Con and Anime NYC. Excellent. So that's an example of what you're talking about of contract work. Like you have a contract with Sunrise to interpret for their guests at different conventions this year. And it sounds like you've laid on some really great advice for anyone interested in uh, translating professionally and breaking into an industry. And I definitely do think there are a lot of opportunities like the manga battle translation contests that uh, happen every year. And I know that several people have gone on who have won that uh, contest have gone on to uh, be professional translators. So, yeah. Uh, in terms of other conventions that you might be at, uh, Mari, like where else could people find you this year? Uh, That's the thing is, um, unfortunately, these things, uh, as many things are, 
uh, I have a kind of a vague idea, but I don't have my full year schedule yet. So, uh, but if anyone is, um, let me think. I know I'm pretty sure that I'll be either at New York Comic Con or Anime NYC or both. I'm not sure in what capacity yet. Uh, so that would probably be the next event that I could pretty confidently say that I'll be at. There's probably going to be one other event at least in between that. Um, but I, the final pieces of the puzzle haven't fallen into place yet. Well, we'll definitely let our listeners, uh, keep, keep an ear out for, uh, you know, whenever, uh, Mari will be attending a convention and we'll, I'm sure we'll definitely, uh, report on, you know, whenever, uh, an announcement comes, we'll let our listeners know too, where they can uh, go and uh, attend the panels you'll be at and I meet you. That would probably be best. Yeah. I can, I can try to make sure I let you know once, once I have the green light. Um, I guess before we uh, wrap up here real quick, is there anything else you want to plug before we uh, head on out of here or? Uh, at this time, no. Um, I definitely will keep you guys posted though. Um, there's a couple of things that I know, at least one thing that's supposed to be released this year where I actually tried my hand at, um, helping to copy edit some, uh, subtitles. Uh, it's mm. actually a live action thing. Um, it's a live action documentary about cats. So it, oh, it, it kind of, um, plays more on that side of the business. And then, uh, I'm also literally this week, I'm working on, um, fixing some translations of interviews, some for anime from back from anime Boston and some for a DVD of live action monster movies. Um, Nice. kaiju movies uh that i don't know when the release date is but as soon as i find out i can pass that on to you where that that's gonna that one's gonna be a fun one because i actually interpreted for the guests and for the interviewer for the interview and now i'm going back to work on the script that are going to be turned into the subtitles that's awesome yeah and I, I love kaiju movies so i'll definitely keep an eye out for that i'd be interested as well yeah but there is one last question uh, we'd like to ask you before letting you go. And this comes from uh, our friend on our Discord server, Wensydale. And this is a question related to your veterinarian work. Uh, he asked, Dr. Morimoto, what's the strangest animal you've ever been in contact with? Okay, so that's a loaded question because is it encountered with <laughs> or actually worked on? Well, take it both ways. I, I think either or, yeah. So... There, there are many strange exotic creatures in the world, um, and I could go on forever about them. In terms of what I've actually encountered as a patient, um, in New York City, I actually did once have a juvenile alligator. Oh, wow. That came to me for a health certificate to be exported to France. And, wow. um, this alligator fortunately did not live in New York City because in New York City you're not allowed to have quite a long list of what are considered exotic species. So the client or owner at the time was from out of state, but the animal is being shipped via uh, JFK, if I remember correctly. So that's why they came to and my and the clinic I was working at, at the time was known for treating exotics. So uh, I did duly did my examination and. Since I had been interested in large reptiles, as a student, I actually knew exactly how to 
handle an alligator safely. So I actually got to also teach my staff how to do that and promptly wrote out a health certificate for travel and they went (laughs) on their merry way. But that's, uh, that's one of the more interesting things I've had. Um, I, I definitely had more encounters as a student because I was interested in zoo and wildlife and we had a partnership with, um, the Rosamond Gifford Zoo in Syracuse and Cornell so I would make a trip once a week or once every other week with the faculty from the vet school to the zoo. And I got to play with a lot of different exotic animals. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of pulling it back into manga, definitely. Um, I, I, I'm really sad that Cage of Eden didn't do so well. But uh, if you want to see a lot of exotic animals... Um, Unfortunately, exotic animals you can't see live versions of anymore, but uh, definitely check out Kejavine. And I will warn the female fans that it's a very, very fan service shonen series. So there are a lot of panty shots and, you know, boobs that shouldn't belong on high schoolers. <laughs> but if you can get past that, the I, I thought the story was quite fascinating. And, you know, getting to research all these extinct animals was, was a pleasure. Cause I, I, there was a part of me that wanted to be a paleontologist at one point too. And the fun thing too, is if you're in any large metropolitan city with a, a very strong natural history museum, like we have in New York city, I, at some point um, put down the book and walked over to the museum and got to see the bones and reconstructed sketches of what these animals used to look like in real life. Wow. That's awesome. Mm, so, so, sounds like we need to do an episode on Cage of Eden and have you back on sometime. I, I, you know, and I could pull in the editor that was on that series who was also bemoaning the fact that it didn't sell too well. And, you know, that was the time when Kodansha was doing podcasts. I, I, I don't know actually if they still do or not. They might still be doing them. Huh. But I, I literally told them we should see if we can, we can talk to the American Museum of Natural History and do a podcast <laughs> at the museum with video where we can talk about the real life mammals and other animals that appeared in the, in the manga. Hmm. Oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I would have, I would have dug that. Heck, maybe that's something we should try sometime. We'll have to like plan it out, but yeah, that, that's really cool. I'm writing down the idea right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> but strong recommendation for cage of Eden from Mari and also, uh, just, uh, what was the name of the museum you suggested again? Well, in New York City, it would be the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah, and uh, pay a visit there. Uh, yeah, I've definitely been there before uh, in my trips to New York. It is really awesome. They're celebrating their 150th anniversary, and they have, they're supposed to... I haven't had a chance to check it out myself, but they have a, apparently an incredible T-Rex exhibit right now. Oh, wow. Awesome. Uh, hopefully, I'm, I'm planning to go back to NYC sometime this year, so hopefully I'll be able to attend that exhibit. Because I, I love uh, T-Rexes. I love dinosaurs. So that that sounds like really awesome. Talk about plugs, but uh, I don't know if this will be in time for the release of this podcast. But on June 8th, I, I it's not final yet, but I was asked if I could interpret for Yamato Sensei, who is the creator of Asaki Yumemishi, which is probably mm. at this point the most uh, best-selling and most well-known manga adaptation of the Tales of Genji. And some of the panels, I believe, are on exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So Excellent. I'm actually, hope, well, I might not make it today, but that's one of the things I now, especially if I do get this um, 
uh, interpreting gig, um, I need to go and, and check out the exhibit so, and then familiar myself more with Yamato Sensei's work. But that, uh, the exhibit itself, I think, goes on through mid June. Um, so there's a, still a little bit of time left for fans in the New York City area to catch it. And if, if my recollection is correct, and they actually have some of the panels from the manga at the Metropolitan Museum, it's an incredible step for that museum as well. And for manga to be recognized in, in such a, a, a formal art institution. Yeah, that really is awesome. Manga is art, and I'm glad that uh, more Western institutions, especially more galleries, are recognizing that. Yeah. So really happy about that. Definitely uh, everyone who is in the NYC area, check that out. And uh, check out uh, for when Amari will be interpreting for Yamato uh, Sensei. Let's keep uh, our fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yes, thank you so much uh, for coming on, Mari. We'll definitely be having you get on again in the future. But uh, this was an incredible time. We learned a, not, a whole lot. And uh, I'm really looking forward to like all the future projects and uh, events you'll be working on in the future as well. Thank you so much. And again, it's been an honor for to be invited to be on this podcast. It was an honor to have you. And that was an awesome interview from Dr. Mari Morimoto. Uh, thank you once again, Mari, for coming on the show. It was just incredibly fun to speak with her. And we are definitely going to have her back on the show in the future. We've been talking and we definitely want to talk more with her about Saint Seiya. Because that's a series, you know, we she's really impassioned about. I'm very impassioned about. And yeah, we look forward to us uh, having Mari back on the show later this year to discuss Saint Seiya. I haven't read it yet, so that's going to be interesting. Mm-hmm. But until then, I definitely just keep up with uh, all her work, uh, translation work, interpreting work. You can read new chapters of Bordeaux from Joan and Jump. Uh, you can look forward to the upcoming Udon release of Rosa Size. And she's done so much work that you can just uh, keep your tabs on. And of course, if she's going to be at a local con near you, uh, just pop on in and say hi to her. I'm sure she'd really appreciate that. But as for us, and uh, if you want to keep up with what we're doing, follow us to see who will get on as guests on future podcasts and or what uh, uh, series we'll be covering on in the future. Just want to follow us, uh, you know, it, let's go into where you can find the show. Um, Actually, before that, real quick, I, I did mention that uh, I'd be talking about what our patron bonus podcast would be. And uh, at the time of this recording, we, we sort of decided that our first uh, patron bonus podcast would be uh, a podcast on the, uh, what was it, the uh, spinoff Yamcha manga that came out last year from Dragon Garo Lee entitled uh, That Time I Got Reincarnated as Yamcha. Uh, we originally wanted to do an episode of the podcast uh, about this uh, particular spinoff uh back a couple months back uh even last uh, as far back as last year i think but we just never got around to it yeah unfortunately uh, what happened there was that we had an idea of guests we'd like to have on for that but you know uh, uh as you might guess they were guests from viz media and what was happening towards the end of the year uh the launch of the new shonen jump which uh you know they're keeping mum about but uh they were working hard on that so unfortunately there were some complications we weren't able to get them on and we kind of had to put on the, the yamcha podcast on the back burner 
But, uh, you know, it was voted on in our patron poll. And I think uh, now is a good time for it to come out. And Colton, you're going to be inviting on some good friends of ours to discuss the series with. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I won't say who, but I mean, you could probably take a guess as to who I'm having on for that show. Definitely people we've had on before. Very good friends of ours. Uh, so unfortunately, we like like we said, we couldn't get anybody from Viz Media to come on for that for that particular episode. But uh, we're we're going to make up for it by having some other very well liked personalities on the show. So um, you know, if if you're not a part of the five dollar tier on Patreon, uh, please go subscribe to that if you want to listen to that podcast. Uh, I can guarantee it'll definitely be a very fun episode to listen to. I'm very much looking forward to recording. Uh, that soon. I mean, I mean, by by the time this episode's out, it'll be out anyway. Still, kind of let the cat out of the bag, but uh, yeah, um, that's gonna be at Patreon.com/slash Manga Mavericks. Uh, if you want to go ahead and listen to that, as well as uh, every other bonus podcast that we're gonna be releasing at the end of the month, every month from now on, as long as we have the Patreon up. So there you go. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's about that time at the end of the show uh, for us to uh, go ahead and start plugging away at our own stuff here. So, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Lum Ramayasha and on places like Animation Revelation and Analyst by that name. Wherever there's a Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. And you can also read my written work on all-comma.com. I write reviews of manga and movies on there and you can check that out. I will probably have a review of Detective Pikachu up by the time you're listening to this podcast because I want to see it a second time before I wrote a review. So you'll probably uh, have be able to read that on there by the time this episode comes out. And also, you can check out Lum Squad, my other podcast on there that's also part of the Manga Mavericks Network, but is a monthly podcast I do with my good friend AC on Twitter uh, about Eurasia. Yatsura, and we'll probably have the second episode out by the time you're listening to this, where we talk about the anime, and we go into our thoughts on the anime, our thoughts on Mamoru Oshii's involvement on the anime, our favorite episodes, so you'll definitely uh, look forward to that if you want to hear more of our thoughts on the anime, and uh, look forward to more episodes of Lum Squad coming out every month, and you can follow Lum Squad on Twitter at Lum underscore squad, uh, you can email us at lumpsquad at gmail.com and yeah that's basically where you can find that podcast as well if you want more Rumiko Takahashi related discussions in your eyes specifically a Yurisiyatsura podcast in your life definitely go listen to that mm-hmm. definitely go uh, check out all Lum stuff uh, as as someone who's not super familiar with Yatsura, uh I enjoy Lum Squad quite a lot, so I'm looking forward to that next episode. But uh, as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. And uh, I do a few other podcasts as well, such as Life Lessons, the Gintama Manga Cast. So if you're a fan of Gintama, go check that out. It's on a bit of a hiatus at the moment, but we still have a huge backlog of episodes you can listen to over at GintalifeLessons.wordpress.com. Uh, you can also listen to One Podcast Prevails over at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, it's a show I recorded with my friend Doctor over from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast about detective coding, case closed, uh, whatever people call it. And uh, I enjoy recording that show in particular. So, you know, if you're a fan of Conan, uh, please go listen to that. Again, that's at OnePodcastPrevails.com. Uh, but as for uh, all comic and manga mavericks and whatnot... 
Uh, we post every episode of Manga Mavericks first over at all-comic.com. Uh, unless we happen to put it up on our Patreon. If you subscribe to the $2 tier on our Patreon, uh, you'll have access to select early podcasts, uh, depending on, uh, obviously, when we have those edited. But uh, yeah, if you if you want a chance to listen to some of our podcasts early, uh, even, even earlier, I should say, uh, definitely go subscribe to uh, Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Um, you can also follow us on uh, facebook.com slash alt.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or at uh, manga mavericks.tubler.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel over at youtube.com slash manga mavericks uh, for uh, different excerpts of the podcast, such as whatever news we talk about, whatever series we discuss. Uh, even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything over at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what did you think about our interview with Mari? Uh, do you have any manga that you want us to read on the podcast? Uh, any thoughts on the podcast in general? Uh, just e- email us anything, really, and we'll read it on the show. Again, that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever you call it. Uh, it really helps the visibility of our show, and it, it really just helps our show get out there in general. Uh, so please go do that if you have the time. And uh, I think that's going to be about it for the episode. This has been episode 88 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 89. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.